This is Dean Mathis, Director of Capital Ministries Michigan. I want to talk about the real judgment of history. The real judgment of history. Our text is going to be in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 34. It is an account of Jesus right after he had been rejected by the religious leaders of Israel at the time. They had rejected him as being the Messiah, and they had accused him of doing his miracles by the power of the devil himself. They had accused him of all those things that he had done in healing the sick and in healing lepers and in doing miracles that even they said only the Messiah would be able to do. They said, yeah, he did them all right because the people were demanding, is this the Messiah or not? Is this the son of David? Which means in terms, is this man really the Messiah? And they rejected him and said, no, he is not. So this caused the nation as a whole to turn away from Jesus. Now, from that point forward, there were many who believed that he was the Messiah and experienced eternal life and spiritual rebirth. But the nation itself then was placed under an anathema, a judgment. And when Jesus pronounced this judgment, the leaders recoiled a bit and tried to go back on the defensive. They took umbrage at what he had to say because they knew that what he said was a condemnation against them. So we pick it up in verse 34, and the thing that's going to cause their reaction. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? He said, you evil men, you've called the very act of goodness, the very acts of the Holy Spirit, as evil. You're evil. How can you even know the difference between good and evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Now, he's going to give us a way to know what he's talking about here in the very next verse. It's a wonderful thing about the Bible. It's a wonderful thing about the accounts telling us about the words of Jesus is that he always explains himself very clearly. What is he talking about? These, what comes out of you, good or evil? He's talking about their words. If you listen to people long enough... They'll tell you what the internal content of their lives is. You listen to them long enough, they'll tell you what they believe. You listen to them long enough, they will tell you what they really think. You listen to them long enough, you can figure out whether or not they're good or evil. Just by listening to their words. Here's what he said. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. Most people today are living their lives as though nobody's paying attention Because there is no day of judgment. God is sort of a cosmic Santa Claus if there is a God. And there is no accountability for men. We're certainly not going to have to answer for anything. Well, Jesus here in this verse says, yeah, you're going to have to answer for everything, including the idle words that come out of your mouth. Because they really do tell you the content of your soul. They tell you your worldview. They tell you your belief system. And they tell you where you stand really in relationship to God, the ultimate truth. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now the words that they had spoken had just condemned them because they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. Whereas other people, like the disciples around him and and many others, had confessed that he was, they did believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Later, after his resurrection, they would confess him as Savior and Lord. But 
where you stand with Jesus Christ will determine whether or not you are justified or whether or not you are condemned. And you will know that by what you say about him, how you confess him or deny him. Well, then the Pharisees, these religious leaders, decide to go on the offensive again. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, Jesus, for about 18 months, had been doing numerous miracles and signs. He had been teaching many wonderful things. And they were saying, well, now, if you'll just give us one more, we need some more evidence. There are people like that around today who are saying, well, I would believe in God, but he hasn't given me enough evidence. The Apostle Paul in chapter 1 says God's given every man enough evidence that nobody has an excuse. God has given us tons of evidence. And if you're really sincerely seeking him, he'll give you more evidence. But in this case, they had given him lots of evidence. They're trying to justify themselves. So he said this in verse 39. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus said, I'm not going to give you any other signs publicly. The first half of Jesus' ministry He did all of his signs openly and publicly for the purpose of demonstrating that it was the Messiah. After this turning point, he will do his signs privately on the basis of faith in answer to specific needs of people who believe in him or to demonstrate that they should believe in him. So there's a dramatic change in the teaching of Jesus. Also, he shifts from teaching propositionally to teaching in Proverbs, to teaching proverbially. So so many changes come. He turns his attention now toward the disciples, getting them ready for the new mission that he will be assigning them to after his resurrection. But he makes it very clear to the men of that generation that the only sign he's going to give them is the sign of Jonah. That is the sign of resurrection. For the nation of Israel, there will be three of these. One will be just a few weeks before Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. He raised a friend from the dead. The friend's name was Lazarus. Jesus had formed some other resurrections, but Lazarus' resurrection came after he said this. The second sign of Jonah, of course, the ultimate one, is Jesus' own resurrection, which will be carried out. These people are hatching a plot. Jesus will be killed at their instigation, but Jesus will be raised on after three days in the tomb, just as he is prophesying here. And he says this more than one time in more than one venue. There's yet to be a future dramatic resurrection which will affect the nation of Israel, but I'm not going to get into that. But Jesus said, you're going to get a sign. The sign you're going to get is a sign of resurrection, and that's the sign that God gives us. The sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all the sign you need to know that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died on the cross for your sins, and his resurrection from the dead proves that God has authenticated his life and his works. Therefore, Jesus can give you eternal life by grace through faith if you believe in him. Then he goes on to say something rather powerful. It is this, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation, that is the contemporary generation that Jesus is talking to, the generation of 30 AD, and condemn it because they repented They changed their mind. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, of course, 
if you read the book of Jonah carefully, in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah was not swallowed by a fish and kept alive inside the fish. Jonah actually died, and then a fish swallowed him and delivered him to the shore and barfed him out. Jonah died. That's very clear in the text. He descended into death, into Sheol. And it tells us that there's consciousness after death. Jonah prayed after he passed through the gates of Sheol and asked that he would be given a second chance, that he would not die disobedient. And God honored that prayer. The fish swallowed his body, and and God gave him his physical life back. And Jonah went on and performed his ministry in Nineveh. He did not die in disobedience. The result was a great repentance in Nineveh, at least for a period of time. And uh, the city was spared the judgment of God. So God said there's going to be in the future, on the day of judgment, of those who have rejected Jesus Christ, The men of Nineveh are going to stand up, and you're going to be there at that judgment, and the men of Nineveh are going to stand up, and they're going to judge you. They're going to say, look, you actually saw the Son of God perform miracles, and that you rejected him on the basis that he was demon-possessed, and you didn't reject him because you didn't see and understand the miracles. You rejected him because he wasn't going to do it your way. He wasn't going to accept your interpretations of Scripture. He came along insisting that God had a deeper meaning to those things, a more moral meaning to those things than you did, not just surface obedience. And they will condemn you. They will condemn you. And then he says this in verse 42, the queen of the south. Now that was the queen of Sheba, who during the reign of Solomon came and visited Solomon to see that if all the things she had heard about Solomon's wisdom and glory were true. And Jesus in verse 42 says this, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth. She made a long and arduous trip to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. You have heard me speak. You have seen the Spirit of God do miracles through me. You have seen proof that I am who the Old Testament said the Messiah would be. And now you have rejected me. These people from the past who responded to a whole lot less light than you've had will rise up and condemn you on that day. Recently, I was reading an article in a local newspaper about a moral issue, the issue of whether or not a Christian family has the right to, for example, own a piece of property. They have weddings on that property. They refuse on the basis of their Christian beliefs to have same-sex weddings on that. It's a private piece of property. They refuse to do that. That has resulted in them being banned from a local farmer's market because the local city said, well, you can't discriminate. That's against the law. So they've taken the case to court. In the article, it said, you know, that was in a different jurisdiction. It's an unfortunate thing. However, this city will be shown to be on the right side of history. No, the city's going to be shown to be on the wrong side of history. Right now, because certain things are a fad and a current trend and certain Mores have changed and have been changed by the force of minority work through the court system doesn't mean that it's right. God has defined what's right and wrong in his word. And for people to come along and to say, well, because we've changed some laws that we've, we've ultimately changed right and wrong itself is not true. This passage proves that in the day of judgment, people from the past, will be alive. You will be alive on the day of judgment. And there's going to be some yeah, 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 yeah from the people of the past who will say to the people of the present who 
have picked the wrong moral side, have picked the side against God rather than standing with his word, they're going to say, look, dude, you should have known better. We responded to a lot less information than you had, and uh, now you're going to find out that God has not lied, that God has told the truth, and we are accountable and responsible to him. He is the ultimate authority, not a pressure group opinion. Not the one who screams the loudest and throws the biggest fit. God is the final authority in all matters when it comes at the end of the age. Then he goes on to say in verse 43, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Now he's speaking about the people and the generation of his day. What had happened was is that John the Baptist had come along and had gotten people's hearts ready to receive the Messiah. John the Baptist came preaching saying, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is on his way. John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would have a forerunner. John the Baptist had pointed Jesus out at the beginning of Jesus' ministry prior to John the Baptist's arrest by Herod. And so they were ready. Many of them had repented and said, yes, we're not living really the way God wants us to live. We're not living according to the moral meaning of the law of Moses. And they had gone down and they had been baptized by John the Baptist as a sign that they were ready now to receive the Messiah. And among the early followers of Jesus were all men who had done that, who were followers of John the Baptist, and then they became followers of Jesus. But many of the people who had, had just sort of gotten ready for the Messiah, but then these religious leaders had left the house empty. Rather than leading the people to Jesus and the Messiah as a nation, they had led him away because they were about to lose their position of authority and influence and all of that because it, Jesus had made it clear that he was the one that would be in charge, not them. Well, Jesus said, what's going to happen is this. It's like a man who was demon-possessed, and for some reason the demon left, and the man got his life clean and straight, but he didn't fill it with God. He didn't fill it with good. So the demon comes back and finds the guy empty. So he goes and gets seven more demons, all of them worse than him, and inhabits the guy. And the last state of the man will be worse than the first. And that's what Jesus is saying. God has put the nation of Israel through a number of disciplines because of their failure to obey the Mosaic law. He had sent them away into exile. They had come back. They had gone through some terrible times. But because there was a believing remnant, the nation had survived and even thrived. And by that particular point in history, there were about three and a half million people living in parts of Israel that belonged to them by divine gift. There was a nation of Jewish people there in various Roman provinces and sections. But nevertheless, they were there back in the land. The temple was standing and functioning and all of that. But Jesus said that's all going to end and it all did end in 70 A.D. Why did it end? Because at his first coming, they rejected him as the Messiah. That's what happens to all people who turn their back on Jesus. After the resurrection and after the church was born on the day of Pentecost, 
the gospel began to go out, the issue for the whole world becomes this same issue, the spiritual issue. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is the Bible the word of God? Now, in this passage, we see an illustration from Jesus of the fact that the Old Testament is the word of God. For example, Jesus endorses the book of Jonah. Jesus endorses the historical accounts that contain the events like the Queen of Sheba. Over and over again in the teachings of Jesus, we have Jesus endorsing Scripture from Genesis all the way through what we call Malachi, the whole Old Testament corpus as we have it. So Jesus is saying, this is literally the Word of God. Now, I put this to you. If you're going to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're going to have to believe what Jesus says about everything. And when Jesus says a certain thing is a fact, it's a fact. If Jesus says there was a literal Adam and Eve, there was a literal Adam and Eve. If Jesus says the Bible, beginning with the first five books of Moses all the way through, the writings and the prophets are the word of God, inspired and infallible and errant inspired scripture, then friend, that settles it. You're looking at true history. You're looking at fact. And wherever the Bible touches on any issue, on science or history or anything else, where the Bible touches on that, then that settles it. That's the truth. That's where you work from in figuring out the true timeline of things. But look at the truths that we've seen in this particular passage. You are an eternal being. This life is just one part of your existence. In this life, you're called upon to make real decisions, moral decisions. The prime one being, who is Jesus? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he who the Scriptures tell us that he is? So, that's the prima facie decision. Flowing out of that then, you and I are faced with another set of decisions. Are we going to live our lives on the basis of what the Scriptures teach us in the area particularly of moral consciousness? When the Bible teaches us things about honesty, are we going to be honest? When the Bible teaches us things about kindness and charity, are we going to, are we going to follow those things? Are we going to do those things? And then we're going to discover that the Bible also teaches us how to have the capacity to do those things through letting the Spirit of God live in and through our hearts, through faith in Jesus Christ. So we too will face judgment. And we're going to find out that everybody who ever lived is still alive. Some will be in a right relationship with God by grace through faith. Many will not be in a right relationship with God because they have rejected his revelation. They have rejected him. So it just boils down to that. History doesn't end when you die. Your history doesn't end when you die. Nobody's history ends when they die physically because there is more to come. And the more to come is a whole lot longer than what has been. So the question is, when the real time comes, and you're given an opportunity to be confronted by those of the past, what are they going to say to you? Smart choice, guy. Are they going to say, you should have been smarter than that. You should have listened to what God was trying to tell you. You should have responded correctly to his grace and his love. May God richly bless you.